0: If you deepen your interests, maybe one of those interests turns into the thing you really want to do. And
1: welcome back to Off Record with your host, Corey Levy. Today, we speak to venture capitalist, angel investor, and entrepreneur, Albert Wegner, who is best known for being a partner at venture capital firm, Union Square Ventures. Before joining the firm, Albert founded several companies and was the president of Delicious through the company's sale to Yahoo!. He was also an angel investor in successful startups such as Etsy and Tumblr. In this week's episode, Albert gives us his take on blockchain and Bitcoin, tells us what skill every young person should do more of, his secret on making hard decisions, how you can figure out your career path, and towards the end gives us a very interesting insight into the AI debate. There's that and many more. We hope you enjoyed this week's episode of Off Record.
2: Thank you, Albert, for joining on the show this afternoon. I really appreciate you taking the time.
0: Corey, good to be here.
2: So I want to start out by asking, what would be your advice to young people trying to figure out what they want to do with their lives?
0: Well, it's obviously the big question, right, for every one of us. And I think my recommendation is discover what your interests are first, you know, and then actually spend time on your interests. And if you deepen your interests, maybe one of those interests turns into the thing you really want to do. Now, that's a lot more easily said than done, because the school system doesn't give people necessarily the room, the freedom to explore the interests, but that's what you should do. And interest could be anything. It could be a sport. It could be a particular area of knowledge. It could be taking care of other people. I mean, it's unlimited what an interest could be.
2: And what do you think are some good ways one can figure out those set interests?
0: One pretty good guide is any activity that when you do, you kind of don't notice the passage of time. You go, oh my God, I can't believe that two or three hours went by while I was doing this. That is a helpful indicator that you have an interest in this activity. And then of course, there might be activities that come to you more naturally. So you might have some degree of talent at it. Talent being defined as like your rate of learning is naturally faster than that of other people who try to learn the same thing so those are two possible indicators but uh, you can also arrive at your interest i think just through trying a whole bunch of things and also you can arrive at interest through thinking about them first and selecting that way and then trying things so I don't think there's any one guaranteed path to help you find interests, but these are some helpful indicators.
2: And what were your teenage and college years like? What do you think made you distinct?
0: Well, I had some interests, and I was in the very fortunate situation that my parents really let me run with those. Uh, one of my interests were computers, and when I was, you know, a teenager in Germany, which is 35 years ago, computers were still very expensive, and my parents nonetheless bought me an Apple II, and that was super helpful. And it also helped that I was. In the German school system, which we weren't scheduled from eight in the morning until six in the evening, we had class in the mornings, and then we had a lot of free time. And so I was able to actually do a lot of these things and explore those interests. And I had fun other hobbies. I was really into rocketry. And so I had this opportunity to explore my interests, and and that was turned out to be super helpful. And
2: do you wish you had started doing or done more of much earlier in your life, like specifically actions or activities with compounding effects?
0: writing. I think that, you know, I've been blogging now for, I think, 10 years. And uh, at the moment, I blog of so three times a week on average. And it's incredible how much uh, better you get at writing the more you do of it. That's number one. And number two, you remember thoughts, arguments, places much better when you write about them. So now when I travel, for instance, I always keep a travel journal. And so I can recall a lot of our vacations on which I've kept the travel journal better. So I really strongly recommend writing. And if you can write uh, in a blog publicly, that's great if you don't feel confident doing that i would recommend you know writing a journal i think writing and then the other you know complementary portion of course is reading and and, uh, reading a lot i always did that the thing i started much later and in retrospect uh, you know you asked what what, what do i wish i'd started earlier would be writing
2: and you started your blog about a decade right or how long has it been yeah sounds about right yeah What about in the last few years? Have you developed any habits over the last year or two that has changed
0: your life? You know, I've been working on sort of breathing exercises. It's actually something that I had done a long time ago because I used to shoot competitively and shooting is very much about sort of entering a very calm mental state. And I used to do breathing exercises then and then I didn't do them for a very long time and I restarted that a couple of years ago. And that's something else that works for me. Everybody has to find, I think, what works for them when it comes to how do you calm down your own mind. But that works very well for me. And I encourage people to try it out because it's obviously something we do naturally, but it's quite shocking how many people have never done any kind of tried every, any kind of breathing exercises. So I recommend that.
2: And do you have any like routines that you do every morning, afternoon, or evening? Do you have like, a specific time where you write or specific time when
0: you do these breathing exercises? I write in the mornings on my blog. In the evenings, the thing I try to do is I always try to finish with reading and reading a book. Something that I've started a few years back is that I read multiple books in parallel. The reason for doing that is that when you get bored with one book, there's another book that's ready and that you're already into. So what I used to do when I would just read one book at a time, is if I kind of didn't feel like reading that particular book that evening, I would not read a book at all. And so now that I have two, three, sometimes four books going at the same time, there's always one that I'm like, oh, no, now I want to continue this one. And uh, that's another habit that's really helped me read more. And and also, I just think, you know, trying to not be on your screen right before you go to sleep is uh, works well. What
2: would you say your biggest challenges are right now?
0: Biggest challenge continues to be for me to say no to more things, to not say, yes, you know, I'm going to go be at this event, speak here, meet with this person, support this effort, you know. Okay. And it's hard because... There are a lot of people um, whom I'd like to be able to say yes to, who I'd like to be able to uh, attend their meeting or meet with them or speak at their conference or, you know, review their pitch deck. And it's hard to say no. And I'm obviously in the no saying business. you know we make on average one to two deals per partner per year so i say no a lot but when it comes to making deals always think i need to get better at saying no when it comes to not deals but you know just meetings and and other demands of my time
2: and how do you say no do you have any tactics around your time
0: well so one thing that i've gotten a lot better at is if somebody sort of emails me out of the blue i do get back to them with questions rather than you know somebody who's saying i I want to meet with you to tell you about my startup or about my not-for-profit or my project, whatever the case might be, uh, I used to sort of say, oh, well, great, let's find, try and find a time to meet. And now I always go back with a few questions. And if people then don't really engage on those questions, then if I, it's not somebody I already know or know well, then I'd that's a way of triaging who I think I should take a meeting with or not.
2: Do you have any tactics to making like hard decisions? So if you have you know, two very good options to make, do you use regret minimization or a coin flip tactic you have
0: any- yeah, I have a I have a very high quality crystal ball that I've acquired a few years back. <laughs> I'm a big fan of... uh, There's a a woman philosopher she teaches at Rutgers. Her name is Ruth Chang. And she has a a TED or TEDx talk called How to Make Hard Decisions. And I think it's a really, really good talk. I've referred lots of people to it over the years. Uh, And the answer is that you cannot try and distill these hard decisions down to sort of a single number where you say, I'm going to do all this work and then there's going to be this numeric rating scale and one is going to be clearly better than the other. Because the reason many decisions are hard is because the options differ along different dimensions that simply cannot be reduced into a single number. And so one framework that she sets out in her talk is think about this decision as if you were writing and as if you were writing the book of your life You know, what do you want that book to read when you look back at it a couple of years from now? And I think that's a very powerful framework. It's not the only one to use. Another approach that I often take is that I do a lot of work, do a lot of research, but then I make the final decision not by trying to write it all down and pros and cons and waiting, but. Having done the work, kind of the right decision emerges. This may sound a little um, hard to follow, but it's sort of when you do the work, instead of trying to reduce it, if you let all the work settle in and then you take the time and you sleep on it, maybe a few nights, there's that moment of clarity where you're like, okay, I know what I want to do here. And I've done that on many different things from, you know, obviously from investment decisions, but also, you know, things like where to, where to buy property, for instance, or what kind of car to buy or, you know, lots of things that you could try to be super scientific about and try to reduce to that sort of one number, but where I think it's much better to do a bunch of research and then let the brain do the work. The brain is really, really good at doing complex comparisons sort of on a pattern basis. If you give it the room to do so, by the way, one thing I highly recommend and that's been important for me also as a change. Yes about changes in life is that kind of brain work happens often when you sleep. And one thing I've been gotten much better about is that I get enough sleep. Uh, I used to, you know, often sleep less than I need. I need eight hours a night. And I often used to sleep six, sometimes five. And it really didn't work for me. And, and um, I made this change a couple of years ago where no matter how much work is undone, no matter how many emails are not replied to, I get my eight hours of sleep. It makes a big difference.
2: That's great. And do you have any other, like, what are some of the other foundational works that have defined your, your thinking?
0: So foundational books, books that I think are super, super important to read. Beginning of Infinity by David Deutsch. It's a book about knowledge and science and what it enables. Thinking Fast and Thinking Slow by Daniel Kahneman. It's a fantastic book about, you know, the different parts of our brain and how they, you know, how we often jump to conclusions quickly and why we do that. And I would also recommend Grit by Angela Duckworth, which is a fantastic book. Um, and some of the things I was talking about early, at the beginning, This conversation about interest and discovering your interests and deepening them and uh, finding purpose through deepening your interests. Those are all ideas that uh, Angela describes in uh, grid.
2: Got it. I want to talk a little bit about, about the blockchain. What would be your advice to someone young who has heard of the blockchain and Bitcoin, but that's about it?
0: Well, one of the wonderful things about the world we live in today is that if you're interested in a topic... You can uh, learn about it very, very quickly because all the information is just one click away. It's always a good idea if you know very little to start with Wikipedia and uh, take a main entry on, let's say, Bitcoin and then take some of the links that are in there, click those, open read those. And that's a great starting point. And then, you know, I would use Twitter and other resources to identify people who write um, frequently about um, blockchain and who whose posts seem to be highly cited by other people. That's also pretty easy to find that. so. If you have a genuine interest in it, then bringing yourself up to speed is really quite possible. And I think it's what makes the world we live in today, where so much of this information is out there, so much more exciting than a time when you somehow had to wait for the book to come out years later, or you had to know the right people. So, and the things I would recommend is that, you know, you deeper into it, you then go to the projects that people are launching and, you look at their white papers and you start reading their white papers. And if you don't understand them, you look up the terms and figure out, you know, what those terms mean. So this is a very, very rich subject. It's a subject that combines distributed systems with cryptography, with economics. It's very, very rich and exciting area. Uh, It's an area where A lot of innovation is happening in real time where people are taking uh, breakthroughs from research that are only a couple of years old or sometimes uh, just being made and are implementing them in systems that are launching a short while after that. A good example of that might be uh, Zcash, uh, which implements something called ZK-SNARKs that had only been invented a couple of years earlier. So uh, it's a very exciting area and, and it's all out there if you want to. Just go, go look for it. What,
2: what do you believe about the blockchain that a few other people believe in? Or do you, do you ever argue with your partners or your friends about a particular topic that you strongly believe in that, that others don't?
0: We're all believers that this is a foundational innovation, that the ability to maintain a consistent database, but not need an owner for that database or not even a consortium, but truly have that ownership be decentralized. We believe that's a foundational innovation. Uh, I think there are lots of interesting arguments to be made around, you know, what are the vectors for adoption? What are the missing technologies? You know, for instance, one really big question is a few years from now, will Bitcoin and Ethereum Be the leading blockchains the way they are today or will there be a new blockchain one maybe that hasn't even been created today that will be much larger than either one of those those arguments you know i think uh rational people can disagree on i would be suspect of anybody who has too strong an opinion who says like definitely yes or definitely no because i think there are just reasonably good arguments to support both the persistence of Bitcoin and Ethereum, but there are also reasonably strong arguments to support the emergence of, uh, of a new contender.
2: Yes, for certain things like like currency, you know, blockchain utility is obvious. For other things, the you know, utility is not so obvious. How transformative do you think that the tech will be in in other industries?
0: How transformative it will be depends on a lot of factors, including on what happens to the existing big incumbents, right? So you have large digital near monopolies or companies that have very large presence in their markets like Facebook and Amazon and Google. And there are questions around, you know, what will regulators do about the power that those companies have? Those regulatory decisions will have some impact on the growth of decentralized alternatives. Overall, I am pretty convinced that decentralized alternatives to these systems will be built in the coming years, and that over time, they will become more important because even though people may be quite happy with um, their own experience of Facebook today, to the extent that some of their friends start being on other places... They may eventually get pulled into those other places as well. So network effects don't disappear in a decentralized blockchain based world. They just migrate to systems where the network effect isn't centrally controlled. So the benefits of the network effect don't accrue to just one corporate entity, but instead accrues to the system as a whole, which in turn is owned by many people and many people operate in. So I'm pretty bullish on this being something that has a lot of room to grow. I think with as with anything that's such a radical departure from the status quo, uh, I think it'll take a long time. It'll take possibly multiple decades uh, for this to play itself out.
2: Probably a decade ago, we first met, I don't know if you remember this, we were in a car and said, Corey, I think the app store is coming out. I think you should, I think this will be really big. Fast forward to today. What excites you? What do you think, you know, what would you tell someone working for you, your kids to focus on that you think would be really big in the next decade?
0: Uh, blockchains and cryptocurrencies, without a doubt. Um, yes. I would also add to this. Uh, I think you know CRISPR and hacking the genome in a variety of different ways. I think incredible, important breakthrough. And then I think that we're making interesting progress on other decentralized technologies, um, such as decentralized energy generation, decentralized communications. Uh, and I also think that everything having to do with the environment will continue to be super important, in particular all um, things that have to do with clean energy and, um, um, you know, in particular generating electricity and storing electricity effectively. I, I think it's just absolutely critical. And there have been some important breakthroughs, but many yet to come, you know, including much improved batteries and I think, you know, crucial work to be done on Uh, Nuclear fusion. So, and then the final area, of course, is machine learning and robotics. Um, The breakthroughs that we've had uh, in machine learning in the last few years, and what they're now enabling in robotics and what people call embodied artificial intelligence, I think we're just at the beginning of an extraordinary uh, journey there as well. So, it's a very exciting time in terms of what we can do technologically in many different areas. It's a very scary time, though, in terms of what happening in society, and I do think if we don't address uh, the sort of many tensions that we've created um, around the globe, then all these technological breakthroughs that I just described, we're not going to get to their benefits. Um, instead, we're going to sort of regress uh, into uh, into more strife and, and violence, uh, and, and that will obviously um, be a very sad outcome.
2: And what, what first order principles do you think a new sort of technology project or, or startup should
0: follow? You know, it really depends on on what you're working on. I mean, obviously, if you are building a consumer technology or even a, a, a technology that you want businesses to use, the number one thing always is to figure out how you create a product that actually people adopt and what is that path to adoption and how does it solve a specific problem so you know product market fit is an absolutely critical um thing to be looking for and some of the other areas i was talking about where it's closer to you know research there are the it's the higher order bit is making the actual thing work um you know like building A dramatically better battery or building a quantum computer that actually works so you know it depends a little bit on on where in that sort of technology value chain you are how close to the application versus how close to the sort of enabling technology but having a fairly in either case having a fairly singular focus i think is critically important so knowing what the one thing is that you need to get right and working on that and, and pushing everything else aside is sort of critical to making startups succeed.
2: And what unique traits do you look for to identify, you know, founders with, with actual intellectual rigor versus those just good at merely signaling?
0: That comes up pretty quickly in conversations. I think there's no substitute for spending time with founders, having in-depth conversations, asking them tough questions. We as a firm tend to be pretty opinionated, meaning we, we will not be shy about stating our opinions. And, uh, you know, that, Often then precipitate more in depth debate and discussion. And if somebody isn't willing to hear a different opinion and then engage with it thoughtfully, then that's probably not an entrepreneur we want to back. Doesn't mean they have to have our opinion or even uh, agree with our opinion. It's just, are they willing to engage with that? And when they do, you know, is it clear that they've actually thought about the problem? One of my pet peeves is, is you get a lot of people who say, I've spent a lot of time thinking about this. And then you ask two questions, and two questions in deep in. it's clear that there's no way they've spent a lot of time thinking about it, or if they have spent a lot of time thinking about it, it clearly didn't get them anywhere. So that's our approach. Spend time talking to people, ask them tough questions, have opinions, see where they, how they engage, and see the depth of their thinking on a, on a topic.
2: And obviously, it's context-specific, but do you have any uh, general or standard tough questions that you ask people, or founders are generally a little bit taken back?
0: The area where I have a tough question and it it kind of ties this whole conversation together is I do still a fair bit of career advice and um, people come to me um, seeking career advice and usually they would like something very tactical, like they would like to know which particular technology or which particular startup they should work for. And I do try to engage on that level, but I tend to also ask people the question, you know what's your purpose in life? And that stops a lot of people dead in their tracks because they've never been asked that question so directly and and also it's a little unfair because they didn't expect that I was going to ask that question necessarily. I do think when people coming for career advice, not asking that question is sort of almost like malpractice because that is the central question. how can you give somebody advice on what they should do in their career? If you don't understand that, or if more importantly, they don't understand what the answer to that question is, so that's my tough question. Um, with entrepreneurs, that's a lot easier because usually their purpose is to build that thing. They have this thing in mind that they want to build, and so that question comes uh, is sort of taken care of at that moment.
2: Who are some of your mentors or top kind of three people you go to when you're looking? seeking advice?
0: I'm very fortunate that I, I just need to, you know, get up from my desk and walk over one or two desks. We have a very strong partnership here and we very much go to each other for advice. And it's a very experienced team of people. So um, I don't need to go very far for that, thankfully. And then I have a wonderful wife at home who's an incredible in her own right, and entrepreneur. And so between home and work, I've got things pretty well covered.
2: What's the biggest thing you've learned from from your wife, Susan?
0: That there's more than one way to do things. Grew up in Germany in a fairly rigorous and fairly rigid and regimented system. And so being open to the idea that there are multiple ways of approaching a different problem, um, Susan has taught me a lot about that.
2: What about uh, Fred Wilson? What's the, the the biggest thing you've learned from him, working with him over the last several years? Uh,
0: what I've learned a ton from Fred, um, but the thing that stands out the most, I think, is really thinking about how to work with entrepreneurs. And, um, you know, when I first came into investing, I thought that if the answer to a question seemed obvious to me, I should just, you know, almost blurt that out. Um, but that's being right There's no sort of prize for being right. There's a prize for being right and being able to influence the entrepreneur's thinking along those lines. And so I've learned a lot from Fred about, you know, really always making everything a two-step process where you think about what do I think is the right next thing for this company? And then how do I communicate? How do I approach this specific entrepreneur? Because every entrepreneur is different. Every company is different. Um, how do I um, get them to see that this thought has married, to potentially even embrace this thought as their own thought? And that's a really important difference, I think, when you're an operator. You can sometimes just say, look, you know, here's what I've decided we should do. And obviously you as an operator want buy-in too, but the degree of buy-in you want and need and how you get it from an entrepreneur is totally different than being an operator yourself.
2: What side of the artificial intelligence are are you on? Elon Musk's or something we should be really worried about or, you know, Mark Zuckerberg's terms of. having an optimistic view
0: of it? I have this book draft out that people can read. You can find it at worldaftercapital.org. And in it, I describe myself as an optimist. Um, I'm an optimist about the possibility of technology to help humanity. But I think that technology is never in and of itself good. So if you think about fire, you can use fire to cook and to make bricks, but you can also use fire to burn down somebody else's house. If you think about artificial intelligence you can use artificial intelligence to help diagnose disease faster better cheaper you can use artificial intelligence to mass manipulate people um, by serving them you know custom design texts to that are maximally designed to get them emotionally riled up and, and not thinking straight so um so i think the first thing is i believe artificial intelligence can make human life a lot better if we use it the right way then there's a separate question of should we be worried about the emergence of a super i think it's not something we should dismiss i think that there are scenarios in, in which this could go wrong i think the way most people are approaching the topic though i think is somewhat wrong which is i think this all comes down to values and much of the book that i've written is about values and we need to have an important discussion as humanity about what our values are and how we want to pursue them. And those values then should inform how we interact with other humans, but also with other species on this planet. Because I believe superintelligence is to the extent that they emerge, to the extent that we create them, or maybe someday they arrive from elsewhere, they will take some clue from how we interact with each other and how we interact with other species and so i think we have a lot of work to do there but my worry about artificial intelligence today isn't that my worry about artificial intelligence today is that we haven't understood how it could make human life better because we are trapped in uh, a worldview that's a industrial age worldview. And because we're trapped in this, uh, many people see automation as a threat and they see it rightly as a threat because the current system is making the benefits of automation go to a few and the uh, downsides go to many. And so I think we need to fundamentally be willing to leave the industrial age behind, embrace what in the book I call the knowledge age. And when we do that, Then I think we can know how to use artificial intelligence, uh, for everybody's benefit as opposed to for the benefit of a few.
2: And how long do you think that'll take for, you know, the world to get, to get there, do you think?
0: Well, I believe getting out of one system that's as complex and as deeply ingrained as the industrial age into a new one is a generational project. Um, it's not a question of a year or two. This is a question of decades. And of, um, you know, in many cases, generations, certain people simply retiring or even dying. There's this, you know, saying that science progresses one funeral at a time. Well, society to some degree does as well. So I, I think I see this as a generational project. I'm writing about it and speaking about it because by doing so, I think I can help accelerate it. But I'm under no illusion that this is sort of like we flip a switch and voila, we're in the in the knowledge age. It would be lovely if that were possible, but I don't think it is.
2: Do you feel the same way about the current education system? Do you think that'll change in our lifetime?
0: It, it will have to. It's part of that change. So... Um, When I say the industrial age and the industrial system, the education system that we have today, we built that coincident actually even slightly anticipating the industrial age. So if we want to get to the knowledge age, we have to change our education system to foot with that. And so, again, tying different parts of this conversation together, we need to create a system that gives people much more freedom to discover their interests. We need to make people excited about knowledge for its own sake, not you have to go to this school so you can get into this, you know, this elementary school or nursery school so you can get into this, you know, high school so you can get into this college so you can get this job. But rather like knowledge is something that makes us humans human and um, acquiring knowledge is pleasurable and interesting and exciting and opens new vistas for you in life. That don't have to have a commercial angle to them. So uh, yes, we need to completely retool our education system as part of this change.
2: Do you want to talk at all about how you set up your children? Sure. <sharp inhale> no, no,
0: no, no. Very happy to talk about it. So um, this change I talked about in the education system, Susan and I have been trying to live that at home. So we started homeschooling our kids uh, about five years ago. Five years ago, When I say we are homeschooling them, we've created sort of an environment where they can have some private tutors, they can use technology, things like Duolingo, Khan Academy, Quizlet, and obviously go out into the world and take classes with other people. Uh, so we have very much shifted and taken them out of the school system on purpose to give them that opportunity to have the time to discover their interests and then once they have an interest to have the time to go deep on that interest
2: no worries um well we can end on that so thank you
0: super great great talking to you
1: thank you once again for listening we hope you enjoyed this week's episode with albert wegner thank you so much again albert for coming on the show his take on the current climate of decentralization and within the ecosystem of bitcoin and blockchain was very insightful alongside the tips he gave to aspiring startup founders I particularly enjoyed the conversation about artificial intelligence and how we compared it to a core technology like FIRE. That was a great analogy. You can find all of his links in the description. You can also find your host Corey Levy on Twitter at Corey. Thank you so much again for listening and other than that, stay tuned. We have episodes every Tuesday and we'll see you next week on Off Record.